Thanks for listening to the City Collective Podcast. We hope that this message from Pastor Jason Charles and the City Collective team challenges and inspires you. Enjoy. Good morning, City Collective. Thanks for joining us for Church Online. Uh, We've had a great start to our morning already, but this is just one of the ways that we continue to stay connected as a church. And it's crazy to think that we're already in the month of September, uh, as we talked about in the hosting, that fall is on the way, and I, but I can't be the only one who is wondering where the summer kind of went. But last week, we had a blast at church in the park, rain and all. Our people came out and it was awesome. Uh, and we have plans coming together for our second birthday celebration. So September is gonna be a fantastic month for us at City Collective. In the meantime, uh, next week, we're gonna be launching our fall series and our team is really excited about what we have in store. And this week we are getting things rolling for fall 2020 as we spend time in one of my favorite passages of the New Testament. Perhaps you've heard it before, perhaps you haven't, but I believe that this passage is a powerful illustration for how we experience life together. This particular passage is in John chapter 8. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 11. But what a privilege it is to share these moments of worship and reflection as a community and to do it together. I don't know about you, but I'm in need of community more than ever, and I don't want to lose my awe and wonder of these moments. This past year has revealed to me over and over again that this is an impossibility to do life alone. Uh, We were always meant to be in relationship, we're always meant to be together, and we're always meant to trust in the unending faithfulness of God, and that has shown up time and time again for us. It's been revealed to me, I know it's been revealed to others in a whole new way. What grace is, what what forgiveness is, what acceptance is, and what community can really be. And so I'm excited for what God has in store for us as a church. I'm excited for what we get to dive into this morning. So if you could follow along with me, we're gonna be going to one of my favorite passages like I mentioned, in John chapter 8. We're going to be starting in verse 1, and I would invite you to follow along at home. And it says this, But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning he came again to the temple. All the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, and placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, This woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now, in the law of Moses, we are commanded to stone such a woman. So what do you say? This they said to him, and they said to test him that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus, he then bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. This is one of those parts of scripture that is just so full of mystery. We all ask the question, what did he write in particular? But we're going to talk about that. As they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus then stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? And she said, no one, Lord. And then Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go and from now on sin no more. Powerful, powerful. I love that scripture. Um, 
I hope that you are settled in and ready to go. But my question as we get going this morning is, is have you ever packed for a long trip? Um, you know, you're getting a chance to visit an exotic place. Right now, exotic is like going to uh, Whistler or, or going a little bit over farther west. It's not too far, but you know what I mean when you're packing for a long trip. And maybe if you're like me, every time I seem to pack, I take my whole closet with me. I got to keep my options open, apparently. I don't know if it's going to snow. I don't know if it's going to be sunshine. Especially if I go back to Calgary, it doesn't matter what time of year, snow is a possibility. And sometimes... I have a challenge getting the clothes I desire to take with me all in one of those little suitcases because I, I'm in a little bit of denial about how much I'm actually bringing. Because let's be honest, I don't want to actually check a bag. I already am trying to find the cheapest flight possible, so I'm not going to have a bag checked as well. So what ends up happening is I begin to engage the weight of my body to cram and compress clothes in such a way my knees are on the bag, I'm zipping it up, and when I finally get it all the way around and there's that final few inches to bring the zipper to a close and you can feel the strain, you don't want to break it, but you know you're so close and you slow down and then you speed up, changing your position, and the zipper itself is crying out and speaking in tongues. You know that you are so close. It is insane, but it's such a satisfying feeling when you finally close that luggage. Am I the only one? I know I get a feeling of satisfaction. Maybe it's petty, but I get that feeling of satisfaction, of accomplishment, of getting everything I wanted in that suitcase. <laughs> and, and in an odd way, in life where we would think our cravings and desires would reach so much farther and would be, have so much more depth, that feeling of satisfaction, that fleeting moment is one we pursue in so many different areas of our life. We want to be fulfilled. We want to be accomplished. We want to be satisfied. And this, this silly example is, is fairly accurate in painting a picture and definition of what that word fulfill actually means. I want you to pay attention with me to Matthew chapter 5, verse 17. It has Jesus saying that he did not come to abolish the law or the prophets, i.e. The, the Ten Commandments, but rather he came to fulfill them. That word in the original language, the word fulfill in the original Greek, it means to, to make replete, to, to cram, to pack to jam. It means to stuff. And Jesus is making an enormous statement right off the bat in his ministry. This idea of jamming, of cramming, of fulfilling to fully, for, to, to completely, fully, and totally satisfy the desires of the law. The law was never meant to be something which was a separator between us and God, but it was God's initial invitation to his people to live a life in pursuit of holiness, of righteousness, of what we've talked about before, of right relationship with God. And as Jesus is saying this, he is saying that the craving of the law for right relationship is only completely satisfied in the coming of Jesus. It is Jesus offering to humanity himself and not, not just to behold him, not just to look upon him, but to receive him, to receive beyond abundance. You see, the narrative in Jesus' life 
is always one of fulfillment. Water to wine. Disciples catching too much fish. Feeding the 8, 10, 12 thousands of people, 12 baskets of leftovers. It becomes very evident upon further investigation of the biblical narrative that we have a Savior who desires for you and I to be satisfied. He desires to satisfy, to stuff, to jam, to cram our soul with satisfaction and fulfillment. And it's not, it's really important to create a distinction, I believe, between fulfillment and happiness because Jesus doesn't say that he came to make us happy. He came to fulfill. So that's so much more than having a good feeling. This is the God that we serve and this is our need for fulfillment, to feel complete, to feel busy, to feel valued and worthwhile, to discover satisfaction, to understand that this is who we are and Jesus comes and meets us right where we're at and says, I've come to fulfill you because I know that at the very core of your, your humanity, this is what you crave. Now, when we turn to John chapter 8, we see three parties involved, two of which are on either side of the spectrum of striving for fulfillment. Jesus is so dramatically and overtly confronted by the law which he has come to fulfill, the Ten Commandments in particular, is what is cited to him as the particular reason for the response of the mob. Uh, a, a woman is brought before him by the Pharisees and the scribes, and, and, and they've surrounded her. She was in their midst, the Bible said, and just moments prior was apparently in the throes of a sexual encounter. And when we read this passage, I know for many of us that we can feel great remorse and sympathy for her. But it should be noted that these men are justified legally and lawfully they're quoting the Ten Commandments. The seventh commandment has been broken and in turn she is rightfully being presented to be stoned according to the tradition and practices of the time. But, and it's interesting to note that the religious leaders of the day were attempting to paint Jesus in a corner. But in doing so, they were actually placing themselves as lawyers in Jesus' court of law. He's had a, he has a different approach to things. They make their charge explicit. Teacher. This woman was caught in the act of adultery. And this is the most important, important cultural element within the story. The nature of the accusation against the woman. They possess the evidence that the law requires to convict the woman. See, the law in that time period is often misrepresented because the evidence required was actually really stringent. So basically, they're, they're trying to prevent suspicious husbands from simply accusing their wives unnecessarily. The law required strong testimony from two witnesses who saw the couple in a sexual context, lying in the same bed, unmistakable body movements and positive identities. They're, they're being very particular. The two witnesses had to see these things at the same time and place so that their testimonies would be identical. And the gathering of such evidence was so demanding that in reality, it virtually required the witnesses to set a trap. Now, this in of itself created a multitude of issues. The law itself expected that if a person witnessed another about to commit a sin, compassion required them to speak up. They're, they're not supposed to just allow the sin to happen. They're supposed to advocate for each other. Yet, the witnesses in this scenario would have stood silent 
neglecting their moral obligation to give guidance to the woman and instead they're only desiring to catch her. There's also the clear problem of where is the man in this scenario. These accusers were willing to ignore their own indeficiencies in this whole process simply to expose her. The sins committed to draw judgment upon another are often ignored in our own hearts. And are we not so often guilty of carrying pride in our own hearts while noting the failure of others, of, of criticizing our neighbors for perceived sin and yet avoiding the diseases of lust, of abandonment, of accusation which are festering in our own homes? How often are we the Pharisees bringing someone to judgment because we're unaware or unable to come against the own issues in our own lives? We see this on a societal level with the clear racial issues in our communities which are coming to the surface in such ugly ways. And so often we ignore them and we allow them to fester. And we don't allow ourselves to first deal with the sin in our own hearts. And we're quick to offer judgment but we're slow to reflect on our own failures. Because hear me on this. Judgment is the smokescreen for sin in our own lives. Whether or not you are morally correct, whether or not you are right in your evaluation of the situation, the manner in which you communicate that truth is reflective of what is being disguised in our own heart. See, you notice at the beginning of John, Jesus came not just with the truth, but with grace as well. And how often do we bring the truth feeling justified in that, but lack the grace needed for transformation and for healing to follow? But in this situation, it's a powerful, open-handed presentation of truth and grace. The position of Jesus in this story. They present their evidence, they make their claim, and the action of Jesus is unique in comparison to any other in the Gospels. He does something that we don't see in another, any other scenario. He bends to the ground and he begins to write with his finger. Now, the biblical narrative doesn't say what he wrote specifically so imagination has run wild wild and there's a wide array of opinions and options as to what it could be some scholars uh, claim it was the sins of some of the men he was just calling people out he was writing out all their dirty laundry others think that it was the ten commandments he was reminding them of the very thing that they're bringing before them regardless this is the only recorded time in the new testament of jesus actually writing something and the statements he leads with is the ultimate tweet mic drop moment we wish we all had. And he says, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And one by one, they walked away. They had no interest in a trial. They were only there for a public lynching. And there are many things we can read into this story, but I find it significant how the narrative paints a picture and provides details so we understand the movement and the stance of Jesus in this environment. In, a, in an approach that was unlike the cultural norm, seemingly outside of the normal legal approach and unfamiliar to the many in the crowd, Jesus, he doesn't just stand there and show sympathy. Jesus shows empathy. When a woman caught in the act of adultery was thrown down at Jesus' feet, the bloodthirsty crowd filled their hands with rocks and demanded that she be put to death. 
that confrontation still reverberates in our own lives today. Surely we can relate with the shame of the woman and her exposed sin. We feel a level of sympathy for the woman in this moment, but Jesus doesn't leave it at sympathy. Jesus takes it a step farther because this is who he is and he shows empathy. The woman who is caught is vulnerable. She's ashamed and no doubt she is frightened. An angry crowd was around and Jesus knew of the sin in their lives, but the response he provides is simple, but his actions are profound. See, Jesus, he makes himself vulnerable. He crouches down to write. And then then he stands up to speak, and then he returns to kneel down in one of the most profound stories of the New Testament. The response of Jesus to the woman without a word in her direction was very simply, you are not alone. I know they're all around you. I'm going to come down there with you. It was a response of empathy. Because here's the truth so often in our day-to-day existence, we are confronted with people who are in pain, who are struggling. Stories which are horrific and our hearts are broken. And we hurt for them and we continue with our day. Sure, we might feel sympathy, but empathy is too much of an inconvenience. But Jesus is inviting us to take a different path. Perhaps you've heard me talk about the difference between empathy and sympathy before, but think of it this way, that there is someone who is down at the bottom of a pit, And we often come up to the edge of that pit and we look down and we say, shoot, that sucks. That's a really difficult situation you're in. I hope that it gets better for you. Whereas empathy, empathy is a different decision where we come to the edge, we see someone in trouble and we look down and we don't just say, that's too bad. I hope that it gets better. But we go back, we get a ladder, we get a rope, we go down and we go right into their trouble, right into their pain, right into their pit. And we don't go down empty handed. We go down with a plan and with a hope that we're going to get out together, that I'm with you. I'm at your side. Empathy is so much more stronger than sympathy because empathy is the way of Jesus. Empathy is a dramatically different perspective of how we distinguish ourselves as followers of Jesus in our world. Many of us, we likely have these moments and we understand the shame and fear of the woman condemned, but most of us are incapable of doing more than sympathizing. And often we demonstrate the characteristics of this hypocritical crowd reveling in the woman's degradation, quick to condemn and pick up stones. But we, do we truly understand and relate with Jesus, God who intervenes and saves her? There is a hope for our world when we approach it with a Jesus-styled love. A crowd of hypocritical judgment that are fixated on a version of truth absent of grace and forgiveness. A woman caught up in what was no doubt a hurricane of emotion, believing the death sentence of her accusers to be impending. And then we see Jesus, Jesus coming to not simply sympathize with a suffering humanity, but to fulfill the law, to establish right relationship, to call forward a life within her that is not driven and centered around sin, to establish right relationship for all people, exemplifying what God, who is love, looks like in action. Hear me this morning. If your theology makes you feel superior to others, then rethink your theology. 
The message of Christ has been lost so often in Western Christianity. The gospel has been reduced to behavior modification, the defense of morality, and us versus them rhetoric, rhetoric because far too often from places driven by my own pride and greed, I am guilty of wanting to draw lines of separation. But the truth of the gospel should draw us to a place of complete surrender to a God who releases hope into the hearts of those who think outside of the religious box. Those who hunger for the real Jesus. Those who are inviting all people as only Jesus did. So what does surrender mean? It means an acknowledgement that the way of Jason is never going to be better than the way of Jesus. It means a confession of sin, not for the purposes of guilt or shame, but so that freedom and healing can take place. It means that in the most opposite way of how we normally orient our lives, I am choosing to trust that God's plan and purpose for the world is the one I am choosing to serve. It means that when I look at Jesus, I recognize that this is who God is and whom I choose to follow. See, Jesus is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. And not only for ours, but for the sins of the whole world. And when we realize this and bow to this truth, it is as if Jesus is taking the stone out of our hands and inviting us to grab his instead and discover freedom. We become reborn, aware of the good news for others, not just for ourselves. If our lives are the story of John 8, where we do see ourselves in the story, in the shoes of maybe one of the religious leaders, or maybe we've had moments where we feel like we're acting as Christ, or maybe the woman who's caught in that moment of shame, Jesus gives an invitation that every single one of us needs to hear. Wherever you find yourself in your life today, I think we can all often feel like we are a mistake away from failure, from rejection, from isolation, from mockery, and this woman crouching in the sand, afraid to look up, is met by Jesus down on his knees, looking with eyes full of love. And as he stands up, he's inviting her to stand with, her, stand with him. And he says, look around you, who's left to condemn you? Neither do I sin no more. God is speaking here. And this story is illustrative of the echo of the authority of the Bible from which cover to cover it declares that God is desperately in love with you and is pursuing you in the midst of wherever you find yourself. And if you have ever felt condemned, you know that feeling deep in your gut. And if you've ever felt condemned in a place like church, I'm sorry, that's not the way of Jesus because Jesus came to seek and save those who are lost and we all are. We are all searching for fulfillment and we are all falling short. And so often we think we missed our one opportunity, but Jesus loves us too much to simply have sin overwhelm us in every area of our life, to simply let it run rapid without check or truth. It, it, to do so isn't actually kindness. It would be selfish. Jesus, he comes in with grace and he comes in with truth and he's, he's not choosing his own self-comfort when he's supporting another in their time of need. It's how Jesus does it that we need to pay attention to. The order in which Jesus comes to her isn't a demand for right living and then a reassurance that, oh yeah, by the way, because right living is taking place, I don't condemn you. No. And so there's a path taken, one that's meant for us as well. Jesus is saying to each of us, don't pursue the life of right living right 
doing until you've heard the words, neither do I condemn you. You need this truth for yourself. Live from freedom, not bondage. Live from joy, not fear. Live from peace, not anxiety. And my invitation this morning to, to you, City Collective, is would you consider who you're going to be in the story of John, John 8? A recipient of grace, an advocate for the fallen, or an executor of moral judgment? What if Christians were more known for our feet washing than our sin bashing? What if instead of trying to lead the world, we would instead focus on serving it? What if kindness was the main tool we used to demonstrate God's kingdom? And what if we sought to be a people full of grace and truth, and not just our default that we feel most comfortable with, but we sought to be like Jesus? When we were beaten and broken in our sin, Christ didn't simply glimpse down from the top of our pit and shout down with sympathy, hey, it'll be okay. No, Jesus, God, he came down into the pit of our despair with us, not empty-handed, but full of grace and truth. And this is for you this morning, wherever you find yourself in that story, carrying so much frustration and judgment towards someone in your life, unwilling to hear truth, so you are manipulating grace into another opportunity to simply do what you want. Or maybe you're feeling full of shame and guilt over a mistake made, believing that your story is over. Know this that the God of the universe came to earth, moved into the neighborhood, dropped himself right beside you, not to condemn you, but to offer you freedom. One where grace removes any condemnation and truth says, go sin no more. Pursue a life with me at the center of it. One that leads us forward into more freedom, a life of sanctification, a life that is transformed. My prayer for us this morning, City Collective, is that we would be more than just our default. That we would actually pursue to be all that we have been designed to be. A people with a purpose and a plan given by a gracious, loving God that wants so much more for you than what you are currently experiencing. If you think that there is something that is separating you from that love, know this, that the Bible declares without a doubt that nothing can separate us from the love of God. So reach out today because he's reaching for you. He's saying, neither do I condemn you. Go sin no more. What a freedom there is to be found in that statement. Let's, let's hold on to that this morning and take this into this season of tumultuous change ahead as we all return to maybe a little bit of normalcy with work and with school, with friends and with family. There's so many different things that are going on, but it's in such a different way. We need Jesus and the way of Jesus more than ever. So let's discover that together this week. Let me end in a word of prayer. Father, we give you thanks that you're leading us and you're guiding us, that you're shaping us and you're with us in the midst of our struggle. I pray that wherever we find ourselves in that story of John chapter 8, that our hearts would discover exactly what we need to be shifted in, to be convicted in, to be challenged in. Let our hearts be more than just the default of our, 
of, of what we've done all along or what we would say is just our personality type, but we would actually come to you desiring to be more than simply a default of what it is in the moment, but to be more like you. We ask for forgiveness for our moments of judgment. We ask for forgiveness for our moments where we have fallen short in our sin and haven't pursued right relationship with you. We come before you and we know that you are coming right down into the midst of our struggle, providing comfort and grace as only you can. For everyone that's listening this morning, I pray that there is freedom found in their homes, that their homes are filled with so much peace as we declare this as a church that their homes are filled with so much worship as they discover a revelation of your love, that homes are filled with all that only you can bring in such a way that it just draws us closer to you all over again. We need you, Jesus. We give you thanks. We declare that you are a good God. Guide us, shape us, lead us forward into the week ahead. To you be the glory. Your kingdom come, your will be done. In your name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to the City Collective Podcast. We hope you enjoyed that message. Please subscribe to stay up to date with every weekly message. For more information on City Collective, please visit www.citycollective.com. Or if you're in the greater Vancouver area, come visit us for Sunday. You can find more about our church and how you can get involved with what God is doing in the Lower Mainland. Have a great day.